Well, it's good to be here with you again uh, this evening. And I want to commend you as a church. I think you are doing something right in uh, raising children that are friendly. I think uh, my children have felt uh, welcomed. They're a little braver than, than I was at their age when Dad went elsewhere to preach. I didn't go long unless I had to, especially not if there was Sunday school. It's the worst part of a strange church service in my memories, but uh, you've done well, so good job to you. <clears throat> and I'm also blessed as I think of you having an education-focused Sunday. I think that's, that's a blessing. It doesn't happen everywhere. A number of years ago, I was at, speaking at Teachers Week at Faith Builders, and I told the teachers that they ought to talk to their pastors and see if they would get them to preach a sermon on Christian education at least once a year. And I told them, you know, at least get the idea in their mind. It might take five years to make it happen. Um, and this past year we were there and uh, some teacher came up to me and said, I remember what you said and I've been talking, I think it's actually to her father, and I don't think it's gonna take five years. It hasn't happened yet, but she thinks it's gonna happen eventually. So uh, you're, you're uh, doing that and I think it's a blessing to do so. <clears throat> this morning we looked at what our schools should and could be and this evening we wanna look at strengthening the vision. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> we saw this morning that Christ is the head of the church. Colossians 1 repeats this truth and mentions some other truths that apply to school. And I know I'm speaking here about Christian education, particularly from the aspect of the school, but this applies whether we're um, homeschooling or sending our children to a school away from home. Colossians chapter 1, let's read 13 to 19. <clears throat> Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins? Who is the in image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? We're talking about Christ here. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. We'll stop there. I see here in verse 13, it talks about how God has delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us into Jesus' kingdom. As citizens in Jesus' kingdom, we seek to walk worthy of the Lord, as it says in verse 10. We want to walk worthy of the Lord. Our goal is to please him, living how he wants us to and growing in our knowledge of him. This is much more, I know I'm repeating myself, but this is much more than simply trying to avoid hell. And... <clears throat> Our schools should promote kingdom thinking and values. How can we please God? How can we be fruitful, increasing in the knowledge of him? Verse 16 and 17 talks about how Jesus is the creator of everything, visible and invisible. And we study creation in school. From the vast expanses of the universe to the tiny, <clears throat> tiny microscopic world down to atoms and beyond. We're not quite sure what's beyond. I mean, we know some pieces, but 
So if we keep going smaller, what, what's, what's there? Maybe it's super strings, we don't know for sure. But studying and teaching chemistry has been a blessing. I, I just think it's, I don't know. Not everybody needs to take chemistry to have a good life, but it enriches your life. It's opened my eyes to see. It says here in verse 17, by him, all things consist. That means holds together. We often think it amazing that God created everything. But maybe we don't think it's so amazing that it still exists. God made it, and it just is now. Sometimes we have the idea that when God created the universe, he created things, and then he put natural laws in place to keep things in order without his direct involvement. <clears throat> sort of like, you know, we mix up the cake and we stick it in the oven and then it just does its thing while, and we, you know, are waiting for it to be done. And God got everything going and now he's just letting it run. But that's not what it says here. Not only did Jesus create the universe by a spoken word, he's right now holding it together. He's keeping us from flying apart. And we think this is just a piece of wood. I mean, it's pretty nice. Someone did a good job with the craftsmanship there. But what is wood? What's this made up of? It's made up of atoms. What are atoms made up of? Well, they're made up of protons, neutrons, electrons. And it's mainly empty space, so why doesn't my finger go down through? Well, it's just fascinating. Our human body, we think we're pretty solid, but we're not the same body we were this morning. I mean, lots of atoms have been replaced. Now, that doesn't mean they've ceased to exist because atoms aren't being created. God's not creating anything. Everything that we see is made up of atoms that have been around since creation. Obviously, you weren't around that long. But your atoms didn't start with you. Um, something else or someone else had them, and they're not going to cease to exist with you. I tell my students, I mean, we're literally becoming one here. We're together in the same room all year long. Probably some atoms that are me now are going to be in you by the time the year's over, and vice versa. But we study creation in school. It's our subject. It's all there is to study. And verse 18, Jesus is create, great creator is the head of the church. And I know I said this morning, Christ's physical body isn't here anymore. But he has a body here, the church. And if we're not part of the church, we're not connected to him. And that's made practical by being part of a local church. If we claim participation in the invisible church without being part of a visible church, I'm afraid we're embracing a theory rather than a reality. And sometimes we think, you know, if Jesus would appear and talk to us, he'd appear and talk to us, like we'd see him. We would do what he says, right? I mean, if he, he'd tell us. Sometimes we want to know what, what should we do, but if he would show up and actually we could literally hear his words, End of the story. We do it. But we just got done saying his body is still here. Does the way we relate to the church demonstrate whether we really believe it's his body? We need to be committed to a local body, an active part of it, arrange our schedule around it. When there's a church service, you shouldn't decide to attend. Okay, if the church is really part of your rhythms of life, you decide, well, of course you're going to go if there is something. Now, sometimes you have to decide not to attend, but there's a difference between a person that decides, yes, we will go to this service, versus a person that has to decide, of course it's going to go unless they decide not to. I think that's what we want to promote, and our schools should promote the church. 
I want to think this evening about what we can do to help our schools be such that support parents, <clears throat> promote the church, and expand God's kingdom. And I have five things that I'm going to talk about here, and I don't share these things as the, the five things or anything, or as someone that has arrived, but just out of my experience. <clears throat> and these are things for our school, too. <laughs> it's not like, well, this is how we're doing it, but these are for us, too. Number one, as we think about how to have this kind of schools that we want, <clears throat> excellence engenders respect. Excellent causes or gives rise to respect. As you think about what is the purpose of a school, a number of years ago, many years ago, I heard a lecture by Bruce Lockerbie, I think it was a recording I had, he talked about how his sister was involved in a missions hospital, maybe in Africa. Now you think about a missions hospital. If you're going to start a missions hospital somewhere, let's say Africa, what's the purpose of that missions hospital? Well, I mean, I, ultimately it's to bring people to Christ, right? So the people that work there, did they need to have any medical experience or expertise? I mean, after all, we're wanting to bring people to Christ. So is it okay to have a missions hospital that actually doesn't have very good medical care because I guess we're trying to get them saved before they die. Um, if that would be the reputation, that would be an awful reputation. They might not help you, they'll try to get you saved before you die. <clears throat> the same way in a school. It needs to do a good job of teaching academics. If you're gonna call a school Christian, it had better be good. It's a shame to have inferior Christian schools. As someone has said this way, if your slogan is, and this is never the formal slogan, but if your slogan is, we keep you legal for less, then don't call it Christian. If your students speak of your school as Corncob College, which was what ours was nicknamed as, I hear, they're not gaining respect and appreciation for your values. <clears throat> I said this morning that the school needs to be a place of discipleship. But I want to be crystal clear, and I'm always a little bit hesitant when I say that. I want to be crystal clear, emphasizing discipleship does not mean diminishing academics. If you don't care about academics, then don't call it a school. Just call it a discipleship center. Academics do matter, and a Christian school must have good academics. Of course, the world, the church and not the world decides what's good. I think the world sees education as salvation. I think the church sees education as a means of equipping for service. But school should be a place where students work hard. Now remember, grades are not an objective record of this. Some children work hard to get a low grade. Some lazy children get good grades. It's just the way it is. I think we should be more concerned about those floating along getting good grades than those working hard and getting lower grades. But when there's an expect expectation that at school, you have to work hard. It helps avoid lots of trouble. You get a lot of children together and not much to do, that's just a recipe for trouble. You probably know that at home. So much more when all their friends are there and there's nothing to do. <clears throat> do your children know that you care about them being diligent at, sc at school? <clears throat> Is there an expectation in your house that homework comes before play. Now, I didn't say 
that homework comes before housework or farm work, whatever you have. I, I, I don't believe that's the way it should be. Of course, we need to recognize students are different and exceptions need to be made when necessary. But school should be a place where students work hard. <clears throat> but don't fall for the fallacy that having high academic standards means being high tech. So we're going to have high academic standards, so we're going to be high tech. I'm old enough to remember the time before internet. And then I remember when it became accessible. <clears throat> and I remember reading about this thing called the digital divide. The digital divide was this idea that, you know, the rich kids are going to be able to get access to internet. And they're going to be able to learn so much more than the poor kids that don't have access to internet. And so there's just going to be this digital divide. The privileged have the access, the others don't. And then I come across an article like this. The digital gap between the rich and poor kids is not what we expected. America's public schools are still promoting devices with screens, even offering digital-only preschools. The rich are banning screens from class altogether. This is from that article. Basically talking about, we thought the rich would have the screens and the poor wouldn't. But it could happen that the children of poor and middle-class parents will be raised by screens while the children of Silicon Valley's elite will be going back to wooden toys and the luxury of human interaction. The tech people know that human interaction is where it's at. By the way, Steve Jobs didn't develop the computer while he was on the iPad. Maybe he would never been able to develop it um, if he had an iPad. <clears throat> Sometimes it seems like we try to catch up with society, and then by the time we do, we discover that society has discovered the wisdom in what we were doing all along. So don't fall for that fallacy. <clears throat> but there is something about excellence that promotes respect. And if our students don't respect the school, they will likely not embrace its values. <clears throat> Number two, and I don't have much I'm going to say on this, but curriculum matters. Curriculum matters. Give the staff tools that support the mission of the school, the mission of the church. Don't use curriculum that undermines. Beware of Protestant curriculum. Now, I said beware. That doesn't mean you never use it. I use it. But if we use a curriculum that's designed to, promote, to produce patriotic Americans, don't be surprised when students don't choose Kingdom Christianity. I remember um, when I started teaching at a high school homeroom at that point, and eighth grade in there sometimes as well, but I remember this story, and I don't have the, I would read the uh, story to you if I had it, but in the eighth grade American history, talking about the Vietnam War, they had this great little story. It's talking about these two men who were walking along the trails in Vietnam, and the guy up front stepped into a booby trap, and his body was mangled. And his buddy rushes up to him, and it's clear he's dying. And he cradles him in his arms there. And they talk a bit. And then the guy, just before he dies, says, see you in heaven. And I don't know exactly how it ended. But it's an excellent, excellent story to give to eighth grade boys. If you want them to hold the value that, you know, I could do that for my country. They, the, the curriculum writer knew what they were doing with that story. Now, what am I supposed to do then as a teacher? 
Of course, this was individualized, so I wasn't teaching in a class. <clears throat> That'd be a little different. So could I go, should I go along using teacher? As, whenever they come to that store, I say, now, now you know we don't believe that. To me, that felt like I might as well be quiet. That story was written much better than what I can say, but you don't know we don't believe that. Uh, it, was, it captures their imagination. I remember looking for an American history course for high school, and there was one... <clears throat> Well, let me go to another, my other point. Beware of dull curriculum. There really is nothing like a boring subject, but sometimes it's made to look that way. Um, so there are some curriculum that is so dull that it might be Christian, but I don't think you should use it. Um, I remember looking for an American history course for high school, and I didn't use maybe the obvious uh, choice because it was simply too dull. Um, and, and I think actually that curriculum publisher agrees. Um, I looked at another Christian course, <clears throat> and as I was looking through it to see if I want to use this text, it seemed to me like I'm going to spend most of my time explaining now why I don't agree with what it's saying here. Way too much of the time. And just little stuff. You know, when the Indians do something to the, Euro uh, the European settlers, you know, they massacre them. And then sometimes there's unfortunate in, uh, incidents where the, uh, you know, the godly settlers respond in kind. But they're still the godly settlers somehow. And the Indians are responsible for massacring thing, uh, people. Um, even the kind of thing that you don't even think about as a student, perhaps. Very interesting. I ended up going with the secular text, which has its own issues. But we have to be careful. We have to be careful. I'm not saying... We should only use Anabaptist curriculum, or even only a Christian curriculum, but be careful. Curriculum does matter. <clears throat> My third thing here is that a shared vision is needed. There needs to be a shared vision for what the school can be. Now, I hesitate when I say that in a bit because sometimes you can get in a rut and, well, our church just doesn't have the vision. Now, I'm not saying that about you. But we can have situations, well, we don't really have the vision, so we can't have the shared vision, then we can't do anything. Sometimes there needs to be a few people that are carriers of the vision until more people catch it. But there's three parts to this as I think about a shared vision needed. It takes a group effort. Having an effective school takes a group effort. Today, there doesn't seem to be many things like this on a local level. I don't know about in your community. Like, is there anything that you need to do together? I mean, of course, you do church together. And, but like, for something that you do regularly, is there, do you have to have other people to help you? I remember Melvin Lehman saying years ago that perhaps the school can replace the threshing machine. So the threshing rig was this rig that the community had. I don't know who owned it, but it went around to all the different farms and everybody helped each other do the threshing. And he was suggesting maybe the school can be that uh, replacement. And I, I didn't really click for me. So what, how, how's that work? But I, I think I see it more now. I mean, I don't know. What else do you need the church for? You can't have a school by yourself. I mean, you can homeschool, but I'm saying if you're going to have a school, if it's just a vision of one family, it's not going to work. It's something that we need from each other. And if you're like, like us at home, you know, we need each other, but, you know, we need our blood family. 
If you need something, you can borrow it from your blood family. You don't really have to have the other people in church. But in school, you do. A school that effectively teaches the next generation needs the broad support of the church. And we've been blessed with this at home. I stepped in the classroom over 20 years ago. I didn't teach all that time since. But support for the school has grown. And it's encouraging. I also do see it as an ideal that a church, that a school is a church school. Okay? I think it's good to have it run by one church. It helps us stay connected to the church. The school is part of the church. And that can work otherwise. Several schools can, uh, churches can come together. Not every church needs their own school. It can be an opportunity to work together as churches. But if it isn't specifically tied to one church, I think it's going to be harder for that school actually to see itself as part of the local church. As we think of having a group effort, if this really is a group effort, if this is your school here, then go and visit. Go and visit. Get a feel for what's happening. And probably that's hard. I have no idea what it's like in your school here. But in our school, we don't get that many visitors. I mean, not really. Um, and maybe it's easier for you moms, I don't know, than it is for the dads. But for you dads, I have a suggestion. Just maybe you come in for chapel. Stay two hours after chapel. Once a year. Two hours after chapel. Well, I guess it would take more than that um, if you're going to come in for chapel. But then stay two hours in the morning and just sit in on class. You just see what is happening there. And give input. If the school is an integral part of the church, then the church directs the school. What do you want your school to be like? What do you want it to be? What should be happening in school to help you reach your goals for your children? So that's the first part of it being a share, having a shared vision. The second thing I have here is to value the school. We value what's important to us. What we say we value and what we actually value isn't always the same. <clears throat> if someone were to observe us, they were to observe you. So what does Peckway Church value? What would they say you value? Our children are not really ours. They're God's. And God has entrusted our children to us. And he wants us to shepherd them back to him. Do we see the years that our children spend in formal schooling as important? Or is it just something to get through and they can get on with real life? What would we do if there were no government requirement to have a school? Nothing. The government didn't care at all. Do what you want. I'm curious as to what we would do. What would you do? Would you just send them through third grade? Because after all, once they're done with third grade, they better know how to read. And they can read pretty well. So if no one else, if the government didn't care, would you go through third grade only? Do we go through whatever we do? Do we do whatever we do? What if the government had said, it doesn't matter how many days of school you have. How many days of school would you have? Would we care about our children learning, about them being equipped for life? And we don't know what our children are going to face. And I see this sometimes as my, uh, from my vantage point as a teacher. I probably do the same thing here, but, you know, parents sometimes just think, 
They map onto their children their life experience. And I, I, we all do this. I don't know if we can do anything else. But so, if their experience was a certain way, then that's how it is for their children. And, and sometimes I'd like to say, now, wait a minute, but things have changed a bit here. Are you sure? And how do you know? How do you know what your child is going to need? How do I know what my children are going to be doing in 20 years? I don't know. We don't know what they'll face. If the Lord wills has become more meaningful the last year, that's one good thing about COVID. We realize, no, it might not always be the same. And so we might have our ideas, but what if things change drastically? Are we equipping them? Personally, as a teacher and a pastor, I am glad for all the education I've been able to have through high school and beyond. I am grateful. And I know the Holy Spirit needs to speak through us. But the Holy Spirit is not a substitute for hard work. It's not, he's not an excuse for laziness. It will be hard to have a quality Christian education if we don't value it. And the third thing here is to support the staff. Support your staff. If your children know that you and the staff at school are on the same team, you've done a lot to promote your school. I expect for a lot of you, when you went to school, you knew that if you got in trouble at school, you were in trouble with dad when you got home. And maybe you were a little more worried about the trouble with dad than the trouble with the teacher, actually. Be loving enough to your children to give them that kind of security. That's loving. That's not harsh. That's loving. I've said already, there's nothing like a problem student without a problem parent. I can say that here, right? I'm not your school teachers. There's nothing like a problem student without a problem parent. And that's not quite true. But we can work through all kinds of challenging situations as long as we're working together. And I know the school is supposed to support the parents, right? But it has to be this working together. It can't just be, well, here's how I want it done, and that just has to be the way it is. You know, sometimes we say, don't believe everything your, the children say about your teacher, and I won't believe everything they say about you. Um, but when there is this working together, we can have all kinds of difficult situations. Interact with the school staff outside of school. At church, at home, have them to your place. Visit them. This can help children tie together their worlds together. They just think the teacher is this person that lives in the schoolhouse, especially when, you know, young children. They actually see them at their house. Wow, this is, I think it's helpful for children to see it as one whole. And support your staff, not because they don't make mistakes, but because they do. And you've got to be realistic about this. So, now, I don't, I, I'm not going to pretend to guess the ages of the teachers that were up here. Now, that's dangerous. But, I was... That I was, uh, what was I, 23. 23 maybe when I started teaching school. Wasn't married. And so I, I, I ponder this sometimes. We get people that have no children and no experience with children and then put them in the classroom with a bunch of children the same age. And we expect them to do something. 
uh, and to do and to teach them and it's supposed to go well and they're supposed to know how to handle I mean 10 15 20 of these children that we sometimes have trouble with one that age and you, you should expect your teachers are going to mess up and I know I've made mistakes and I'm sure I've made some that I didn't know I made I remember one time a parent coming to parent-teacher conference and I had some difficulty with his son I he was lazy at least that was my opinion <clears throat> and he needed the law needed to be laid down and I had I don't even know what I had come up with that when he didn't do this then he, this would happen and this would happen and so forth and <clears throat> I'd made one mistake I hadn't talked to dad about it I just so I don't know when PTCs were probably end the first quarter so we had nine weeks, ten weeks into this. And I don't know when I started my strict regimen with him. Um, but so dad comes into the room. I was my second year teaching, I think. Dad comes into the room and, you know, I'm going to have, this is going to be a little difficult. But they say they use this sandwich approach or something. I think you're supposed to, first of all, say something good and get to the difficulties and then end with something good. I think that's what I was told. So dad comes in, how's school going? Well, it's not going too bad. I'm starting with the good part, right? And he says, that's not what I hear. And whoa, I knew, boy, this, this is, I'm not used to having adult men uh, upset at me. Um, now, needless to say, he actually thought his son was lazy too. The only problem was I hadn't communicated. I had let him, his son talk to him for how many weeks? Now, dad should have called me. Okay, he's more experienced than I was at that point. He should have called me. But if I would have just talked to dad, he would have been okay with me being hard on his son because, yeah, he was lazy. You tell me how. He's told me this later, I think, you know, he was on the farm and some, they're out milking and he couldn't find him and he had to look around and he's sleeping on a hay bale. So this was a problem at home too, but I should have just communicated. I also remember another time I had a student that I wanted to, her to take a certain course in high school. I was all about upping the academics in our school and there was this math course that some students had started taking and this is great, this is good, this is what should happen and she's definitely capable and I was pretty sure she was going to take it, and then I said, suggested she should, and she talked to her folks and got back to me and said, no, I'm not going to take that. I'm going to take another math course, or not as academic math course, and oh, I didn't like that. And you know what I did? I went to the board, and I talked to the board about, you know, we really should require this course as part of high school. It should just be a required course unless there's some that can't take it. And the board agreed. So this course is required. I went back to that student and said, well, the board has said that this is something we need to do. Now, I don't know what dad felt like. By the way, he happened to be our bishop. <clears throat> I get along with him okay today. Um, but that, that's not what I should have done. And I, I think it did numerous times I made mistakes. If I were held accountable for all my mistakes, I wouldn't be teaching anymore. So support your staff, not because they don't make mistakes, but because they do. And supporting sometimes needs, means letting them know that, hey, this is not, do you know what's happening here? This is not working. And if they know they support, you support them, they'll usually want to hear from you. And if, you, if they don't want to, then go on. Take it to the principal or to the board, but put yourself into their shoes. Do what you'd want others to do. Number four. <clears throat> Effective personnel is essential. We need 
effective staff. Luke 6.40, reading out of the ESV. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Does Jesus know what he's talking about? We cannot have a good school without good teachers. Your teachers are more important than your building or your curriculum. A system for doing school that undermines the value and role of a teacher is less than ideal for passing on kingdom values. We can Google information. We cannot Google life on life impact. By this I'm advocating that the teacher is a person, not a book or a computer, and we use that some in school as well. But what kind of teachers do we need? Well, if Jesus knew what he was talking about, then they need to be Christ-like. If our children are going to become like our teachers, this is the most important part, then the teacher must be someone we want our children to become like. And I say this with a great deal of inadequacy. I don't want all my students to become like me. I mean, some parts, yes. Uh, but not the other parts. And sometimes it seems they get the wrong parts. <laughs> I have faults that I hope my students, my children, avoid. I know of no one who doesn't have faults that I hope my children avoid. Yet teachers need to model what it means to be a follower of Christ. Teachers are qualified to teach not by their intellect but by their character. We also need convinced teachers. We said the school should promote the church. It's hard to promote something you aren't convinced about personally. As Anabaptists, we have a kingdom heritage. Our forefathers emphasized following rather than just believing. I maintain that much of American Christianity is about making it to heaven rather than living in an obedient love-faith relationship with Jesus. And too often, I'm speaking by myself, we've not recognized the kingdom values in our heritage. Maybe we've been ashamed of being different. We can't pass something on we don't have. Our schools should be helping give an identity to our children. They need to choose. But helping our children understand the heritage they grew up in gives them a chance to make a more knowledgeable choice for the kingdom. And if we want this to happen, then our teachers have to have embraced these kingdom values themselves. So we need Christ-like and convinced teachers. Is that enough? Is it enough to be Christ-like and convinced of kingdom values? Does this qualify us to teach? How many of you are carpenters here? Are there any carpenters here? Raise your hands. Okay, yeah, you have carpenters here. Well, I am also a carpenter. I mean, I've got a little bit of experience. I helped frame in a closet one time. I did some trim. At least I held it in place when the carpenter used his whatever nailer thingy, whatever, to fasten it to the wall, and I helped put in some flooring. And I hope I'm a godly person. But if you're building a house, the rest of you, are you going to get me to build your house, or are these guys that raised their hand? Is it enough that your builder is a godly man or woman? Yet sometimes this is all we ask of someone teaching our children. Now, we know, of course, our houses are more important than our children, right? I mean, we, no, of course not. But do we act like it? We need competent teachers, people that can teach, people that can relate well to both, both parents and students. Just, not like, just like not everyone makes a good carpenter, so not everyone makes a good teacher. Of course, with proper training, probably most people could do either. They need training. 
Teachers need training, just like in other occupations. I'm assuming you carpenters don't just take people that are gifted. Oh, he's gifted in carpentry, so we'll put him in charge of this house. No, no, he's got to learn. You'll make sure he knows what he's doing first. I'm not talking, saying that degrees are the only form of training, but do we put someone in charge of a classroom of our children with less training than someone in charge of building our house? Now, maybe you say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, you're, you're not comparing apples with apples. Parenting, we don't get training for parenting. And teaching is sort of like parenting. I'm both a parent and teacher, and it's different. It is not the same thing. As a parent, you have this built-in bond with your children. You parents ever do this? You're sitting at church with your children beside you, and you sort of look out of the corner of your eye, and you look at these, and you realize, you know what? I am their dad. And you remember sitting on the bench beside your dad, and I am not anywhere close as wise and knowledgeable as he was, or at least I thought he was. And I'm their dad. But you know, God has given parents this built-in bond with their children. They look up to you. They respect you. It doesn't even matter if you're that good. If other people think you're that good, no, but you're their dad. You're their mom. Parenting is hard, but it would be much, much harder without that. And teachers don't have that automatically. They must earn it, or the expectation must be set by their parents. And that is a gift. We talk, heard about that this morning a little bit. If you can give the gift of, to your children that they will respect their ch- parent, uh, teachers. They go, they respect their teachers. Now their teacher could lose their respect, but that's different than making the teacher gain their respect. If you don't teach your children that, no, when you start, they have your respect. <clears throat> then, then, then you're really making it hard for the teacher. We need competent teachers. We need committed teachers. These things call for long-term staff, just like in, as in most professions. I'm sure that the quality of your carpenter crews would suffer if the workers changed every one to two years. Long-term staff provides stability and competence. I, I've taught with both, both situations. There's a huge difference. Now, probably having some short-termers does freshen up some things, and probably you need the same amount of long-term to short-term that's needed in any organization or business. It's not a compliment to us that in our circles, a teacher that's taught three years is a veteran. Why don't we have more long-termers? There's just three things that I thought of. One is lack of pay. You need to be able to support a family. Now, I'll go on record saying that it's valid for it to be on the low end of average. I don't think a teacher should be able to make a living in 10 months. Maybe, maybe landscapers can and, or produce growers, but I think it's fair that they can't make a living in 10 months. But they do need to make a living for lady teachers. They do need to think about what this means for them. Should they be able to afford a house? What about when they get older? So lack of pay is one reason. Second reason is lack of support. It's emotionally draining to work with people. It makes a huge difference if parents and the church is supporting you, and you know they're behind you. Number three, lack of vision. It's hard to get people to do things we don't think are important. If you think, as a church, that school is a necessary evil, something we have to do to get through, 
then I almost guarantee you're not going to get young men to teach long term. Who would want to give their life to something that everybody looks down on? And number four, ordination. Perhaps we shoot ourselves in the foot. I, I, and I'm not saying the school is more important than the church. I don't believe that at all. But we do have harder time finding men to teach than men to preach. Of course, we have a different method of getting them. <clears throat> and one person can or maybe only should do so much. Perhaps we should at least see the principle of the schools already having a leadership role in the church. And I'm not saying it needs to be done. And you can, uh, yeah, point fingers at our, ourselves as well here. But there's at least something to consider. If you have someone that is really doing well, maybe the church should commission them. And that might mean releasing them for some other things. Where do we get these long-term teachers? And I'm sorry, ladies. We need long-term lady teachers as well. I, I, it just seems... Most communities, it's harder to get men for whatever reason. Maybe our ladies are more, meet those requirements better. Where do you get long-term teachers? Well, maybe you should get them from the same place you get your preachers. From among you. It's possible when there's a vision. We also need board. <clears throat> we need a board with commitment. It takes time. You have your monthly board meetings. For a chairman and treasurer, significantly more time. Um, our board used to all attend CASB, Conservative Anabaptist Board Institute. Remember one of our chairmen, when he came off as chairman, he said, that's the thing I'm going to regret not being on the school board. I can't go to CASB anymore. You ought to go. Um, chairman, make, I mean, that's a requirement if you're the rest of the board, they have to go. And that's all volunteer work. Longevity. I cringe, and I don't know what your situation is here. But I cringe when I hear of three-year rotations, especially when it's the first year you know, you're a new member, next year you're vice chairman, and then the next year you're chairman, and then you're off. It's awfully hard to get anything done if you know you're soon done. <clears throat> and we need engagement. Board that know, is at school, talk to the school, uh, talk to the staff, engage with them. And I'm running out of time here. See, it's 8 o'clock, so maybe I'm losing you. One more point. Finances are necessary. For us to have a school like I've been describing will take money. If someone is going to make a living teaching your children, they need to make a living. And this is much more expensive than having all VS staff. Maybe there needs to be a mixture. Novices can train under experienced teachers and bring fresh energy. And many of us can't afford what it actually costs. I believe the church should be involved in that. I'm, I'm convinced of that. I think in Protestant schools, often what happens, businesses subsidize it. But if the church doesn't, the cost of Christian education could be a limiting factor to our family sizes. I mean, really, do the math. Now, maybe it's different. You're a different economy down here. But <clears throat> would we be more open to supporting the education of children across the seas than children in our own church? I think giving regular financial support by the church to support Christian education shows it's something the church values. It permits those who don't have children in school to still share the load. And remember, that means we do that once we don't have children in school, because we are the church. Our church takes up monthly offerings and also has patrons pay tuition. I know some churches that have all members pay tuition, maybe after they're 18 or something. And you have a job, then you're starting to pay school tuition, 18-year-olds. And you pay till you're 65, I think. So I said many of us can't afford what it costs. However, 
often we can afford a significant amount of what we really want and value. Often we can, support, we can afford a significant amount of what we really want and value. Would people in other countries say we can't afford it? If you personally don't think you could afford it, would you be willing to ask two or three other brothers and sisters in church whether they think you can afford it? Before we can't afford it, perhaps we should consider, can we afford houses just like our neighbors? What about its furnishings? What about our vehicles? What does our lifestyle say we value? Providing quality Christian education for our children may mean sacrifice. Do we value it enough? Now, I do think, and you can do however you want to, but I think it's good when the church does charge tuition for those using it, while at the same, same time subsidizing, because we tend to value what we pay for. If it's just free, if someone were to donate enough funds to your school to run the school for the next 20 years, it's paid for for the next 20 years, I don't think the school would be more of an asset to you. We value what we pay for. I think we do well to remember that our finances follow or flow to the things that we value. <clears throat> In conclusion, we need to recognize it's a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6. Verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. If the church really is a vital part of the church, if the school is really a vital part of the church to advance God's kingdom, and if it does this effectively, then we can rest assured we have an enemy that wants to destroy it. And so pray for your school. Pray that it can be an effective arm of the school. And in closing, I'll ask you to stand and turn to Psalm 78. I just want to have us read a couple verses together here. As we commit ourselves anew to the great task before us, to teach the generation to come the things of God, let's read... Psalm 78, verses 6 and 7 together. Verse 6. That the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. You may be seated.